just by way of reminder, the first half of Isaiah, Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, recount for us Isaiah's call. Remember that Isaiah had gone into the temple that year, the year King Uzziah had died and beheld the glory of the king, high and lifted up. And the rest of the book up through chapter 39 recounts Isaiah's ministry to proclaim the reign of the king and recounts Isaiah, uh, the Israel's slowness to come to grips with the wonder of that announcement. Isaiah chapter 40 then begins with this promise of a double comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. A double comfort for Israel and for the nations. More recently, we've been, Isaiah has brought us and developed that message to the point where we've been asking the question, in what consists this great comfort? Isaiah, you've been promising comfort, comfort. What's the comfort? Well, Isaiah finally gets to the point where he says, rejoice because your God reigns. That's a message that is really hard for us just as North Americans to get because nobody reigns over my life. And so it's hard on that level, but it's also hard for us North Americans who find ourselves coming to church week after week after week because we think, of course our God reigns. Tell me something new. But we need to watch carefully, Isaiah goes on. We need to, to guard against being so startled that we throw things away. Because the one by whom our God reigns does not look or act like we might expect at every turn. In fact, what he reveals about the reign of God and life under God's reign will lead you, if you're not careful, to reject him, to despise him, to overlook him. Please keep in mind, O people of God, that Isaiah was writing to a people who knew themselves to be descendants of Abraham, the chosen ones. The warning is as poignant to them as it is for us. But by his reign, the, those who are bereft of help and hope, those who find themselves barren, will now be rich and their family full. This one who reigns, the rain itself will bring the life and abundance for which we have cried to the Lord. So here's the question for us. Wow, that sounds great. And so we hear it and we, and we find ourselves praying, Awaken, O Lord, awaken, O Lord, make it so. And the Lord responds to our prayer by saying, I am awake. 
You are the ones who have fallen asleep, so you awaken, he says. You awaken. How are we to enter into such a reign? How can people such as us who prove ourselves day after day faithless and consequently bereft of help in the present and hope for the future, who find ourselves barren of resources, how are such a people to enter into the celebration of the king's feast? Especially since we have nothing to bring to the table. And that's what brings us to our passage today. Our passage is Isaiah chapter 55. The heartbeat of entering into and flourishing in the festival of our king's faithful reign is repentance. Yes, our passage today is about repentance. And I recognize that, again, for those of us in North America, that is a really hard word to hear. Because we have come to believe that we have very little to repent of. We're doing great. All we need is just a little push, a little boost. But the beating heart of today's passage is repentance. Read with me Isaiah chapter 55 in its entirety. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because the Lord, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, He has glorified you. So seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on Him and to our God, for He will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return return there, but but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Brothers and sisters, this is an amazing passage. This is the word of the Lord to us, his people, in 21st century Flintstone, Georgia. So let's bow our heads and ask that by his spirit we may hear him speak. And so, Father, we do come and we do ask that indeed uh, your will would be done upon the earth as it is in heaven, that your will would be done in this place as it is in heaven, that your will proclaimed by your word would have its way according to your purpose in us. We ask that you would do this because we ask as your children, beloved sons and daughters who have been made alive in the name of Jesus. And it's in the confidence and in the hope of that name that we come. Amen. I'm glad we're not on YouTube. Forgive me. Jimmy Smith is 68 years old this year. Jimmy Smith is a grandfather. He's a retired security guard. Jimmy Smith was glad to finally finish his work and to retire, spend time with his family, spend time with his kids, spend time with his grandkids. It was a comfortable life. It was a simple life. He had simple pleasures. A cup of coffee in the morning, perhaps. Perhaps a walk with his wife, I don't know. Perhaps watching the games. Well, one thing we do know is that Jimmy Smith had this habit that was costly. Every week, Jimmy Smith would take some of his limited retirement funds, and for the last 20 years, he'd go to the store, and he'd buy a little piece of paper with a lot of numbers on it. It's just what he did. His wife was fine with it. It didn't cause too much of a hassle. It didn't disrupt their life too much. It was just what he did. On his way from here to there, in the course of his day, he would just stop by and buy one. And then one day, he heard a voice. And that voice reminded him that this had been his habit for 20 years. And so on May 23rd, 2017, he went into his closet and he started rifling through all of his old shirts. And sure enough, he found one of those pieces of paper. And he looked at it. And he looked at the TV. And he looked at his paper. 
looked at the TV, and he said, Honey! Um, am I seeing what I think I'm seeing? Jimmy Smith is one of our most recently minted millionaires. $24.1 million in monthly payments over the next 26 years. Nobody ever buys a lottery ticket expecting to win. You just do it. It's fun. You just go, $2, please. Buy a lottery ticket. Nobody ever expects to hear a voice saying, please, go. Take stock of what you've been doing because it may make you really, really, really rich. It's really a stunning parable, isn't it? But that's the parable that is going on here. Our passage is about repentance. It's a slow motion, if you would, uh, look at repentance, or you might say a microscopic look at the process of repentance, and look how it begins. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, be refreshed. Come, those of you who have no money, come by and eat. Come. Don't just buy the necessities, buy the stuff of celebration and bounty, wine and milk. Come! Because this is who you are. Come! Few of us go to church week after week after week expecting to encounter the cosmic king delighting to welcome us into his presence. Oh, yeah, another hour, hour and a half. It's just what I do. None of us ever expects, do we, to hear the voice of the reigning one saying, come and celebrate and part of the reason that we don't hear it is because we realize we have nothing to bring to the table. He can't possibly mean that. I have nothing to give. Thomas Watson, writing in his book, The Doctrine of Repentance, how's that for an engaging title? says this, that repentance or, faith and repentance are the two great graces essential to the life of a Christian, and they are inseparable. Hearing and believing will always result in grieving, turning, and entering into the presence of the one who reigns. This passage 
is about repentance. It turns on repentance at the very center of our passage, verses 6 and 7, as we're going to look at here in just a moment, is the hinge piece of this, of this, this um, passage on repentance. It opens with this, in, this, this call, this invitation to something that is simply stunning. And what is the stunning? Our, our, our passage ends with this. It is an invitation, not just to your personal peace and happiness. It is an invitation to the celebration of all creation. The mountains and the hills and the trees, all singing, all clapping their hands, all rejoicing. That is the celebration of the king to which you've been invited. This call to repent is an invitation to the festival of God's stunning faithfulness. An invitation to come and celebrate with me. And it's an invitation extended to those who have shown themselves to have nothing. Who have proven themselves to have nothing. And the invitation is, is, is seasoned with a sense of wonder. Why, why are you, to use C.S. Lewis's language, why are you so content to make mud pies when I've given you this invitation into the celebration of the king? Why, why are you spending your money for that? Why are you exerting all of your energy for that? Come. Come. Notice it says, listen to me. Incline your ear to me. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. It's a stunning thing to be invited into the into the celebration is a stunning thing to be invited to the table of a famous person. This past week, or I guess it was two weeks ago, I had the privilege of being at a conference at UTC in which there were writers all around, and I got to shake Wendell Berry's hand. You can touch me after the service. Because, isn't it interesting how we get giddy in the presence of fame? We, we find ourselves breaking out in a cold sweat. We find ourselves speechless. And here, we have been invited to the table of the cosmic king. He's pretty famous. And he does his job pretty well. The question that we always ask is, how? I have nothing to wear. One of the greatest objections that I encounter, one of the most frequent objections and the most stubbornly rooted objections that I encounter as a pastor in the South, when I say, why don't you come and join us on Sunday? Oh, preacher, I have nothing to wear. Oh, preacher, when I get, when I get my life together, I'll come. It's going to be a long time. 
Because the invitation of the king is extended to those who he knows have nothing to wear. Is extended to those who he knows has nothing to give. They have no money. They have no food to bring to the table. Well, if that's the case, then how do we get in? Brothers and sisters, all we have is our repentance. All we have is our nothing to bring to the table. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit, Thompson, uh, Watson goes on to say. Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Look at what's going on. Verse 6. So, having heard this great invitation, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call Upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. In terms of our passage, repentance involves the seeking and calling out. Repentance involves forsaking his way and his thoughts. Repentance involves returning to the Lord with open hands, receiving the mercy and rejoicing in the pardon. I want to look at that just a little bit. Thomas Watson describes it this way. He says there are six elements to this promise, of the, to this process of repentance. Our sight of sin, our sorrow for sin, our confession of sin, our shame for sin, our hatred for sin, and our turning from sin. Each one of those, of course, in typical Puritan fashion, is extended and becomes this whole book, but a book well worth your time. Seek, Isaiah says, the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Why would we do that? Those of us who know ourselves to be, to be bereft and barren, who know ourselves to have nothing to give, would be, would be and ought to be terribly um, t- terrified of this call to repent. But the reason we can is because of what he said before, I have already established my covenant with you. I have already declared my love for you. I have already secured my love for you. I have already sealed it with blood. And so come. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And the New Testament writes it this way. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Today is the day of salvation. Of salvation. And then verse 7, and this is where the rubber meets the road and where it becomes so offensive to us. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And this is where Thomas Watson's book is so helpful because what does it mean for us to forsake 
our way, well, first it means that we have to recognize that there is a way that needs to be forsaken. There is a way that is leading us to death. There is a way that is robbing us of our resources. There is a way that is, that is destroying our soul. There is a way that is leaving us bereft and bankrupt. And in order to forsake it, we must be able to see it and name it for what it is. And that is so hard for us. Because there's not one of us in this room that does what he or she does thinking, oh, I think I'll do this because it's going to kill me. We just don't think that way. We, we settle on a way forward because we believe it will give us life. The entirety of Isaiah's message has been his effort to say, the way that you're going, I know it looks like it promises you life, but it is actually destroying you. Come to the king. For he is the one who reigns, and he is the one who causes you to celebrate. So forsake your way, forsake your, your thoughts, that is your wisdom, and return to the Lord, that he may have compassion. That makes zero sense to us. Because if we have proven ourselves to be the traitors to God's grace that we are, then it's only reasonable to expect that once we encounter the king again, we have nothing but the death sentence to look forward to. That's what kings do. Kings lop off the heads of, of traitors. Kings lop off the heads of their enemies. That's how they secure their power. It's only reasonable. In fact, by our standards, it's utterly foolish. It's utterly absurd to think that a king would actually welcome us into his presence as those who are his traitors. Which is why he goes on to say, but my thoughts aren't your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. My thoughts are so much greater than yours. My wisdom is so much more amazing than yours. Your wisdom pales in comparison, if you can call it even wisdom. Because the way our king rolls is to make his enemies his friends. By accomplishing for them what they have not been able to accomplish for themselves. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand, this is the heartbeat of repentance. We hear by faith and we turn in obedience. Not because we cower under the threat of punishment, but because a feast has been established for us, has been laid for us, has been prepared for us. So come back into my presence and celebrate. 
So we need to understand that this is the secret, not just to entering into the kingdom, but this is the secret to actually living in the kingdom, to actually flourishing in the kingdom. This notion of repentance. Now, for us, it always means a turning from sin and resting in the forgiveness of God. Because all of us in this room are only that kind of people. We're only a sinfully foolish people. But repentance is about laying down our will and submitting to the will of the triune God. And so we practice this on the macro level, but we also practice it on the micro level. We practice it in private in the privacy of our own heart, in the privacy of our own home, in the privacy of our one-on-one relationships, in the 10,000 moments that make up every single day. For you see, the practice of repentance is, for example, holding my tongue and choosing rather to listen. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. It, it's, it's all about me stepping aside to let someone else go forward. That's a micro practice of not my will, but your will be done. And you begin to see, don't you, how as we are practicing that in the tiny 10,000 moments of every day, we actually are joining Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus himself who bows his knee and says, nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus himself is practicing this discipline. And every time we do, we fellowship with him there. But that's not the first time that Jesus practiced that. Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2. That Jesus, who though, although he was God, did not count that as something to be grasped and, and, and hoarded for himself, but something to be given up to come as a man, not just as a man, but as a servant, not just as a servant, but one who was obedient as a servant, even to the point of death. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Do you understand that that turning of a heart that says, not my will, but your will, is actually entering into the, the fellowship of the triune God's love. It happens every day, every moment of every day. And the logic of it is this. The king has invited, he has established for us this great feast And his wisdom is such that this is how I've determined it. And this is how my world will flourish. This is how my world will be restored. This is how you will be restored. It's interesting, isn't it? How do we get from the... the, Global, individ, uh, global invitation to individual people. Come, everyone, to mountains and hills dancing and trees clapping their hands. 
This, brothers and sisters, is, is where the preacher says, now we're going to go out and take the world by storm. We're going to teach those trees how to clap their hands. Wouldn't that be great? And that's kind of what I'm going to tell you. But I want you to listen very carefully. Our individual practices of repentance have a worldwide impact. This is sort of the servant's version of chaos theory. Our individual practices of repentance together with one another have a worldwide restorative impact. Because the fruit of repentance is joy and hope. The fruit of repentance is reconciliation and peace, what Scripture calls shalom. When, when one stops, stops in our tracks, awakens to his or her circumstances and condition. And here's the invitation, inclines our ears to the invitation, beholds the bounty and turns. Others look and wonder, hey, I wonder where he's going all of a sudden. I wonder where she's going all of a sudden. Did they hear something? Did they see something? And so it spreads like a virus. A life-giving, not a life-taking virus, but a life-giving virus. So you're in an argument with your roommate. Stop. Recognize your own, your own circumstances, your own condition. Listen. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. Behold the bounty of the Father's love and turn. Suddenly the argument is over and reconciliation is possible. It's a tiny little example that you can multiply 10,000 times through every day. Nonetheless, not my will, but your will be done. In short, by our practices in these 10,000 moments of every day of what I call faithing repentance, the hope, the invitation, the welcome of the gospel, the good news of the king's great delight to love and redeem is made visible and is made plausible to a world blind to the reality and suspicious of the call. Of the existence of that, that of the possible existence of such a full and free love that is only in fantasy films. But we embody it. Because we are recipients of the call to come and to celebrate with me. The servant's unexpected strategy for world renewal is to move individuals throughout the world to hear and to turn and to come celebrate with the king. Brothers and sisters, our hope is to hear and to stop and to turn and to look, to see our God who reigns, calling us from the folly and death of our own wisdom, to come to him, to enter into his house, to sit at his table and to celebrate. You cannot have it both ways. 
we cannot hold on to, we cannot grasp to our chests all that we imagine ourselves to have accomplished and accumulated. Because, brothers and sisters, that, as wonderful as it is, or as it may be, is death. Mere mud pies. We must choose. We must see God. We must know God. We must believe God. We must, we must believe the unbelievable wonder and generosity of his great love. And we must turn around and enter into the banqueting hall of our king to celebrate with him at, our ta- at his table. It seems assured. Uh, excuse me, it seems absurd. It seems like a scam. It seems irresponsible. What king would do such a thing to welcome his enemies into his banqueting hall? But brothers and sisters, listen to me. By his servant, that is how our king reigns. That is the secret to a flourishing life. That is the secret to a flourishing marriage. That is the secret to living faithfully and living well as his people in his world. Let's go to him in prayer.